Uh, there were a couple of guys that were arguing about things in the Bible. And uh, the one guy says to the other, I bet you 10 bucks that you can't even say the Lord's Prayer. And the second guy says, hey, you're on. He says, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray you, Lord, my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray you, Lord, my soul to take. Uh, first guy says, the second guy, well, I guess I owe you 10 bucks. But uh, when we talk about the Lord's Prayer, Lord's Prayer, we think of the one that might be recorded in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus uh, was teaching his disciples to pray, and it's sometimes called a model prayer, or other churches call it the Our Father. But that's not the prayer that we want to talk about today. We want to talk about Jesus' prayer, uh, the last time he spent with his disciples. Imagine that you have the opportunity to talk to someone that you respect very much, face-to-face. Now, forget all this Zoom stuff. We want to talk to people face-to-face. And you want to share, you've been asked to share anything you want that's on your heart. I'm sure I'd be somewhat dumbfounded, maybe nervous, And personally, I'm not sure what I would actually say. Each of us has an invitation to talk not just to the greatest one in the world, the greatest leader in the world, but someone who is far greater than that. What do you say when you pray to God? What should we be praying for? Well, we can get an idea from Jesus, who was our model. Now, Jesus had been with his disciples for three years at this point when uh, we are uh, talking about this passage in John chapter 17. And they had seen miracles happen. They had heard his sermons. They had enjoyed trips together. And they had sat at his feet as he taught them God's word. Then that last evening, Jesus ate the Seder, the Passover supper, with his disciples. And he gave us a picture of how he prayed here in John chapter 17. We can learn how Jesus maybe had spent his time talking to his father. Sometimes he spent all night in prayer. Later on, we see that he would be praying a different kind of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, becoming in tune with the Father's will and understanding the pain and suffering that he would experience to become the Lamb of God. 
He knew it would be intense. And his prayer was intense at that point as well. As Luke chapter 22 says that he was, his, his sweat was like drops of blood. Now, the, the prayer that's recorded here in John 17, we see it really has three parts. Jesus prayed, first of all, for glory, that the Father would receive glory. And second, Jesus prayed for his disciples. And then third, Jesus prayed for everyone who was going to believe as his disciples. So there were three things for himself, his disciples, and all believers through the ages. Before we uh, get too deep into this, um, I want to say, I want to ask you the question, what do you think is the proper way to pray? Now, some of you say, well, you know, you got to kneel, you got to fold your hands and close your eyes, right? Or some of us just, you know, we're sitting there and we're, we're, you know, we're just bowing our head and folding our hands. But, you know, what's the proper way to pray? Well, let me say there's no one proper way to pray. There's lots of proper ways to pray. Some of us might kneel down at our bedside at night. Some of us may, you know, just lie down on our bed on our faces some of you know, someone might be kneeling down and, and putting their head to the, f to the, to the floor uh, in prayer, as we see some Muslims often do in that uh, Old Testament style. And uh, there could be others who are uh, lifting their hands in praise of God. There's others that just pray, talk to God in whatever they do. And we see here, in the beginning of this chapter, how Jesus prayed. What did he do? He lifted up his eyes. Too bright up here. Uh, he lifted up his eyes, and he looked toward heaven when he talked. And what did he say? First of all, he prayed for himself. Jesus knew it was a time for him to become the savior of the world. That he would atone for sin. He didn't pray to be released from suffering for all the sin, uh, but that he would be able to endure the suffering that he would experience by taking on the punishment for all the sins of all the people of all time. Jesus didn't pray for physical, material things, but rather for spiritual things. I guess the question is, what do we end up praying for most of the time? Just like to kind of paraphrase the first five verses here. He says, in a, in a kind of a paraphrase, paraphrase version here. Father, you have given me the supreme position over all the people of the world. 
a position I am to receive as a result of my obedience unto death. You know that this position of authority was assigned to me in order that I might give eternal life to those you have given me. Now, Father, the time has come for those events. My prayer then is that you will fulfill your word. Glorify your son as you promised you would in order that by bringing glory to you, I might bring salvation to those that you have given me. So how does this salvation and eternal life come to people? In verse 3, he defines salvation as knowing God and his son, Jesus Christ. Now, in the Bible, the word know is a very intimate word. It's an action word. When we think about knowing, we're kind of all in our heads, but knowing in the Bible is, is active. We see right from the very beginning that Adam knew his wife and she conceived. That's, that's activity. It isn't just a head thing. And so knowing God is not just studying the Bible and trying to understand all about God. We're never going to do that anyways, but we can try to learn a little bit about him. He is so vast and we are so finite. But we can get to know God through our actions. To know God is to understand his holiness, his grandeur, his majesty, his judgment, and his power. Do you know God? How well do you know him? I dare say that some of you might know a lot more about hockey or football or basketball or baseball or whatever than you do know about the Bible. Some of you guys might know more about your video games than you do know about the books of the Bible. How do we get to know God? We get to know him through serving him. And we get to know him through other people, seeing what God is doing in the world and following what God does and says. Now we have salvation, and that is eternal life, when we experience God and his forgiveness. Do we really know God? Do we know that we have eternal life? It begins by confessing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he died to take away all of my sin. And then we submit ourselves to him. We give ourselves to him and we try to find out what he wants us to be doing. The second part of Jesus' prayer 
was for his disciples. And this is the largest section in John chapter 17. These were the people that had been close to him. And he begins this section by describing his relationship to his disciples. And then he prays on their behalf. He prays for their protection, for their continued joy, and their sanctification. While Christ was with his disciples, he protected them from wrongdoing, theological error, and the attacks of the evil one. We are to be protected so that our unity may continue and we will work together in harmony. The biggest part of our prayers probably should be for those who are closest to us, for our family. We should be praying for their protection, for unity in our homes, for their well-being, and for the salvation uh, as Christ did for his disciples. I'd like to say that nothing destroys a church more than lack of unity. You know, light, when it isn't in sync, it is um, dull and it cancels itself out. But when light is focused and lined up, it can cut steel. It can travel out to the universe. It can bounce off the moon. God will do great things when the church is in harmony. Instead of people nursing their grudges, taking offense at the least little criticism or showing immature attitudes like a kid who says, uh, if you don't play by my rules, I'm going to take my bat and ball and go home. That's the way some people act in church. The disciples prayed with one accord. We see in Acts chapter 2 and the place was shaken. You can say that locusts move in a swarm, but soldiers march in step. Note that the request here is not just for unity, but for protection in verse 11. He says that they may be protected so that they can be unified. The implication here is that there seems to be various dark and evil forces that will strive to break up this unity, and nothing less than the power of the Father's name is adequate for the protection from the evil one. The third section in this chapter starts in verse 20. And Jesus prays for everyone who would believe in the future. And that is us. So even at that time, 2,000 years ago, Jesus was praying for us. This is a prayer of faith. How many times have you prayed for people as though they had already believed? His prayer for these people would that would is that they would be one, united so that the world 
around may believe that Jesus was sent to be the Savior of the world. Our goal as Christians is to be one, united with every believer, even here in this building, as Jesus and his Father were one. Let's pray that for God's continued protection against the forces of evil in our families and in our community. Just last night, we received a call for Satan is seeking to destroy others. We need to pray against that. When the church is divided, the world looks at it and mocks God. When the church is united, it becomes a testimony to the world, and people will see the power of God, who is able to take selfish, cankerous people and mold them into a body, working together, loving and caring for one another. Unity in Christendom doesn't mean ecumenicism and fellowship with everyone who might call themselves a, a Christian. But Paul told his Corinthians uh, not to associate with one who calls himself a brother, but who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such men, do not even eat, he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. And when a denomination accepts people who are immoral according to biblical standards into membership and even leadership, we must separate ourselves organizationally. Paul wrote to them later, he said, do not be yoked together with unbelievers, but to come out from among them and be separate. So there is a time when we are to be united, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to have uniformity. We can have different ideas. Pastor Jake talked about that, I think last week, where we're not we don't understand everything all the same way, but we get along together. We encourage one another. We help one another, even if we don't agree on all the fine points of theology. There needs to be a mutual love, a common commitment, and a deep desire to learn from one another and to come to an understanding of the truth of the Bible. Jesus is the common ground. He is the one that binds our faith together. Now I've had the privilege of, of traveling extensively through many countries and it, in many churches in different places. And it's always been so refreshing just to be able to go into a, a church service 
And even if I didn't understand the language even, I could sense God's spirit there. There was a unity, a bonding of, of brotherhood, of sisterhood. And just that feeling that God was there in the lives of these people. They may not have been worshiping the same way we worship here, but they had the same Christ who is their Lord and Savior. And it's just, it was, it's always so amazing as we traveled around um, with our missionary deputation and, and, <coughs> and going to different churches and, and sitting down with other believers and, and just having that bond of, of unity and oneness in Christ. And it was so exciting for us to experience that. And that's the kind of spirit that God wants us to experience everywhere. In closing, I'd just like to share a little story with you. There was a certain old recluse who lived in the deep mountains of Colorado. And when he died, some distant relatives came from the city to collect his valuables. When they arrived, all they saw was an old shack with an outhouse beside it. Inside the shack, it was pretty barren. There was an old rock fireplace. There were some cooking pots there and his mining equipment. There was a cracked table with a three-legged chair that stood guard by a tiny window. And a kerosene lamp served as a centerpiece for the table. In a dark corner of that little room, was a dilapidated cot with a threadbare bedroll on it. They looked around and saw some quaint old antiques and started to leave. And as they were driving away, an old friend of the recluse was coming up the driveway on his mule. And he flagged them down and he, he asked them, do you mind if I help myself to what's left in my friend's cabin? And they said, go right ahead. After all, they thought, what inside that shack could be worth anything? So this old friend entered the shack and walked directly over to the table. He reached down underneath it and he lifted up one of the floorboards. Then he proceeded to take out all the gold that his friend had discovered for 53 years. It was enough to build a palace. The recluse died. 
with only his friend knowing his true worth. As the friend looked out the little window and watched the cloud of dust behind the relative's car disappear, he said, they should have gotten to know him better. What do you know about the glory of Christ and his riches? We pray. Lord, your word is truth. And as we celebrate today that crowd, like the crowd, going into the city of Jerusalem as Jesus rode the donkey into the temple area with people shouting Hosanna in the highest. Hallelujah. And then later on that week they crucified. Help us to see the glory, the glory that you experienced in the cross and the salvation of our souls by what you did on the cross. Help us to mine the glory, the beauty, the wonder of your word. I pray you would direct us and that we can experience you as our Lord and our Savior. 